This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. What are we talking about today? We're going to talk about the fascinating subject of the theories of atonement. Fascinating. All right. Yeah, we're, we're trying to draw the listeners in. These, <laughs> we were just talking off, off mic, how these seem to be great ideas Something with them. when we're at a cigar shop. Planning pure what gold. we're going to talk pure, about. Pure, pure gold. gold. Yeah. Pure gold. And then we get here and it's, it's like, who came up with this idea? <laughs> Why, this is not a good idea. And yet we have it. It's written. So and it actually it. is good stuff. But it's up to us to somehow make this <laughs> interesting beyond this room. Scintillating. Scintillating. That's the word of the day. Yes. We'll try to work that in as much as we can. Yeah. But, but anyhow, it's a good topic. It is a good topic. Because many people don't think about the nature of the atonement and that there are multiple views or have been multiple views. And so it's essentially asking and answering the question, right, of of what actually did Christ accomplish on the cross? Yeah. And along with that is the fact that a lot of uh, division. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are people who literally will not talk to each other um, because of their view of atonement. And again, I don't know how many listeners have ever had that kind of a conversation, but I, I've seen it happen where friendships and relationships are just broken. Um, and so it actually is a subject that is worth hearing. And hopefully the people will walk away with a better appreciation of kind of the flow of historical theology. Yeah. Um, I mean, because we are going to go all the way back to the very early church and talk about it, but it's because it keeps making um, a comeback. All these different views, you'll hear them come up in various contexts over and over again. There's nothing new yeah. under the sun. Well, even, you know, the idea, if you were to ask a typical person, you know, why did Jesus die? They would say, well, for my sin. Yep. That's just one of the views and it's not even the fullness of that. view. Well, and then I, I will ask that because I get that all the time and I'll say to them, okay, so what's that mean? Exactly. Yeah. And that's where you get the dead silence. Yeah. Well, for, for you know, my sins. Right. What What's that mean? What about it? Yeah. What about your sins? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so I said, I, I bet you, you, have you thought about what the word for means? And it kind of goes downhill from there. But yeah. it's actually a good question. But so we got all kinds of these thoughts that Jesus did something on the cross. We know that he did something on the cross where it has to do with our sins, but what yeah so we're going to talk about that yeah and in the process they're going to learn about some dates in church history and, and some people. people yeah yeah so so the first one is you want me to tell them well i or oh, I okay well, i'll do it it's origin <laughs> i'm always afraid I'm <laughs> which is a mess name. up o-r-i-g-e-n yeah yeah and just so that we can throw in our dates so they know we did our homework <laughs> he was from 185 to 254 a.d mm. but his is actually a very popular one strangely enough you hear it most commonly today in the word of faith movement um yeah. I did i don't know if i told you that or if you knew that but it's very common it's called the ransom to satan uh 
it's it's a very very old view, um, and it's really what many of the old early church fathers uh, taught. I don't think it's actually overtly a biblical one. There's some biblical aspects to it. I would agree with, but it certainly became a popular view in the early early church. So, um, and it it still shows up to this day. So, yeah. So the the primary concern of of origin and really the early church fathers, um, if so you want the fancy, fancy word, word, yeah, it's yeah. patristics. Yeah, the fathers uh, from Pater. Yeah, uh, the patristics. It was they really they were trying to find a solution to the question of how Christ delivers us from the power of Satan, and that that was the main burden. Um, it, it wasn't really dealing with the issue of sin or anything like that. You know, appeasing wrath of God. It was how does Christ deliver us from the power of Satan? And just to give you a quote on this. Um, I can't even pronounce the guy's name. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. Uh, but he wrote this. He said, um, the removal of guilt and the restoration of the divine life were not contemplated by the fathers. The structure of this theory rested upon certain passages of scripture in which man is represented as being in bondage to the prince of darkness. The object of redemption was to deliver humanity from that bondage this deliverance being accomplished by Christ when he offered himself as a ransom to Satan. In this offering, he broke the bonds of Satan inasmuch as he was both divine and without sin and could not be held as a subject in Satan's power. All right, so let's break that out. The, the idea is that the death of Christ was actually the primary purpose of it was really a ransom paid to Satan to by Satan. God. Mm-hmm. Did they say by Satan? Yeah, to mm-hmm. Satan by, by God. God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the idea is simply then that uh, mankind is held in captive uh, by sa- Satan, and and then Christ takes our place. But it was a, really interesting because it was um, basically a divine deception. He yeah. traded himself for us, and Satan hated him so much that he eagerly took that and said, "Yeah, um, I'll take you on instead of humanity." Um, the problem is that once he died. Satan thought he won, but in fact he didn't win because he's being because Christ is divine. Um, death could not hold him, and so then he broke free as well. And in the process, he led the ransom, uh, or led free those who were the uh, yeah. slaves. Of sin. And it's kind of like dualism, right? Like these these battling yeah divine figures. Well, and that's part of it because it's a Greek yeah. ph- philosophy that was also so strong there. It, it was just part of their culture, and so. You see it sneak in, yeah. but that. Go ahead and explain yeah, that so dualism. It, I mean, it's just the idea that there's a true battle going on between God and Satan, and that the battle is actually kind of on fair grounds. Yeah, which, <laughs> which is you know untrue. God holds all things together, and He's in utter control. So it wasn't a true dualism where these guys are battling, and you know God had to pay a ransom to sort of free these people from the clutches of of Satan. Yeah, so they they see it as the way it would be talked is that um, Satan was baited by Jesus's humanity, basically puts himself on the hook. Um, but then when Satan bites, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden he's caught. Yeah, G- Jesus being fully God and fully man, or as some people prefer to say, truly God and truly man. Um, he was baited by that humanity part, but then the divine part. Did you see a video of that actually uh what you just said it was very humorous i was watching something with uh rc sproul and john MacArthur, 
And John MacArthur actually explained the hypostatic union and the idea of the fully man and fully God. Hmm. And then R.C. said, of course, I would prefer to say truly God and truly. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I know that some people are. <laughs> and everyone's yeah. sort of laughing and John just looks at him like, thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, so it, wow, you're going to be the next R.C. Well, I don't baptize babies. So. Well, okay. So, so we, uh, they, a lot of, they, they get this idea though of this ransom from, from passages like Matthew 20, 28 and others. But Matthew 20, 28 says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it talks about ransom, talks about giving his life as a ransom for the many. So the ones who are being saved or freed or whatever that means. But what's interesting about it is the reader there has to insert the person of Satan into the passage. Uh, right. Nowhere is Satan mentioned and nowhere is it saying that this ransom is being paid to him. Yeah, it's a presumption. Yeah. Um, so if you like history, men such as Augustine and Iranius taught this as well. Um, and obvi- obviously we see this with C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of Aslan, when he was, you know, he gave himself as a ransom to the white witch. The white witch yeah. He was paying that, that ransom to free mm-hmm. the children, which is just a, a not an accurate view of what actually happened on, right. on the cross. But No, but it, he wrote that uh, when he was much younger in the faith. It's interesting. There's a lot of things that in his writings that I wouldn't agree with, but if you hear him later on or read him, you realize he was even developing a theology. Yeah, but that's yeah. a that's a wonderful example of how it shows up. Um, and again, you'll see it all the time in Word of Faith movement. Um, they love to talk about this idea that he went down into hell mm-hmm. and Satan was cackling and laughing. It really <laughs> does. You can do a you can really preach it good and get the people riled up, and then all of a sudden he tore off the bonds and burst yeah. out right. of hell. and Which is why you're now able to break the strongholds. and Oh, right. yeah. So oh, yeah. every chain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and it, it, it's actually um, something that's interesting, but for the first thousand years of the church, this was the prevailing view that was being taught. Um, and we have to remember that the way the church functioned back then, I mean, just not that many people were re- able to read. You didn't have... Everyone didn't have Bibles. Right. I mean, so it was really captured by a very uh, f- select few of those who were trained. But it, it was the prevailing view. Um, it's interesting to think how much that would change your evangelism. Oh, yeah. You know, like, instead of talking about how Christ died for your sins. though You know, it's not like that was absent back then. But, like, a, a big part of your message is, you know, you're going to be freed from, from the clutches of Satan and his minions and, and those mm. Yeah. Well, and it's also worth understanding whenever you're talking about historical theology, nothing is happening in a vacuum. There was all kinds of other much bigger battles taking place, right? You had just the dealing with the deity of Christ. You had the the nature of the, uh, of the Trinity and so many other things that this was not an issue. Um, there were, everyone understood that Christ died for our sins. Now, exactly what was going on, that wasn't being debated because there was bigger issues being debated, but it became a big issue um, once the Reformation came. Um, so that that was one of the views. And then next one, you how do you pronounce him? Irenaeus. See, I, I was taught Irenaeus. I think it's Irenaeus. <laughs> well, you're a sound schooler. Mine, I, I have to say, I like mine, Irenaeus. Yeah. Well, it would be Greek, it's, wouldn't it? It's fine. I don't know. That's what I was told in seminary. So, unless I, he's African, 
I don't even remember. I don't remember. Which one do you want to go with? Ours or Mark's? I like... Well, Elena, you want to throw in a... <laughs> you, <laughs> let's do yours. Irenaeus. Like Irenaeus yeah. just sounds no cool. I was like, how a... can I make this weirder? <laughs> At this point, we just lost half the listeners. <laughs> but, okay, so Irenaeus though, was a wonderful guy, uh, but he was around 130 to 202, and his uh, theory was what's called recapitulation. So you want to explain that one? Yeah, well, yeah, it's the idea it's that recapitulation. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> that he he, re, he recapitulated himself um in all stages of life for humanity. And so he's essentially trying to right the wrong of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Um he's reversing what Adam did. Um you and, know, or and, what and Adam That's called. not a bad idea. No. I mean, that's it's built off of Romans 5 where the whole Adam theology gets developed that what Adam d- didn't do, Christ did as our second Adam. So it's it's not really a bad idea. It just shouldn't stand alone. It's not the, yeah, it's not the fullness of what right. took place. And yeah, yeah. And I think that's all that needs to be said in that. Yeah. Um, so then the next one would be Anselm's uh, satisfaction theory. Um, he, he was 1033 to uh, 1110. And... This one's interesting. It's the idea that basically sinful man ro- uh, robbed God of his honor. And so we owe him something. We owe him honor. We owe him kind of a restoration of that which we took from him. So what's the theory called? Satisfaction. Theory. I don't think you said that. What did I say? I, I think you stopped. It doesn't matter. I said Anselm's satisfaction theory. Oh. And I, I, w- I was daydreaming. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so with this one though, since that's the case, no, obviously nobody could satisfy the debt to God. Um, and so he sent his son to satisfy his own honors and his own demands. Yeah. And again, this is going to be established and built into the culture of, of that day. Um, but I'm, I'll, I'll read a, a quote from John Williams, um, that kind of describes this. Um, this theory of the atonement can be briefly expressed as follows. The sin of a man, a free creature is, or sin of man, a free creature is an infinite offense as it is an offense against the majesty of God. Man ought to give back the honor he has taken away and because of the insult ought to give back more than he has taken away. In other words, he must make satisfaction for his sin or be punished. But man is unable to make satisfaction for his sins as he already owes God everything, including complete obedience, and the amount to pay is infinite. Already you can hear this in people's preaching. Mm -hmm. Um, Only the Word of God is capable of offering, and the Word of God there is Christ, Mm -hmm. um, is capable of offering due satisfaction in virtue of his personal dignity and humanity. And this he does freely in his death, thereby meriting a great reward which is given in the form of salvation to those for whose sake the word has become man. So it's that idea that we have done this infinite offense. There's no possibility that we can repay it and and satisfy that. And and Christ Mm -hmm. did. Huge, huge view. Very, very common. Yeah. Um, For those who like history, um, his his work on this topic was the first time really in church history where the nature of the atonement was seriously defined and dealt with. And that people should really take note of that. I mean, it's been a thousand years yeah. mm-hmm. and finally we're actually saying what actually happened on the cross. Yeah. Yeah, you, and you great. see, and you mentioned this already, but you do see God's providence 
uh, working itself out within the church and how early on in the church he dealt, you know, what was dealt with were those big doctrines. So hashing out Trinitarian theology, that that doctrine upon which every other piece mm-hmm. of doctrine and theology yeah. is built. Yeah. You know, so they weren't dealing with issues of pneumatology, uh, the Holy Spirit or eschatology, end times, things like that. It starts with the doctrine of God. And then for a thousand years, really before we even begin to discuss in a serious way what Christ accomplished. Yeah. What did he actually do on the cross? And and to be frank, mm-hmm. there's much of this that's correct. Um mm-hmm. and we should not ignore it. So uh unfortunately it because of another view that we hold to, though not exclusively to it, um, people will look at this and say, well, it has to be wrong too. And it's not. Uh, uh, Much of it is very, very good because the Bible is clear that there's an aspect, but that's a key word, an aspect of the death of Christ that seems to indicate the satisfaction or appeasing Mm -hmm. of wrath. And and the the scripture speaks to that. Well, you Um, see it even in the sacrificial system. Yeah. Right, I mean, they're offering right. up these bulls and goats and rams, and it's yeah. it's appeasing God's immediate wrath. It's holding yeah. things back right. um, to preserve the people. So, yeah, you see you see it there, and of course, uh, is carried through in a fuller way in, in the work of Christ. But at the, on, at the same time, though, it's incomplete because what it doesn't deal with is the idea of substitution, which is explicitly taught in the New Testament, uh, where Christ lays down his life in our place for our sin. And we'll get Mm -hmm. to that in a moment, but it doesn't deal with the issue of justice. And that's the key. Right. Justice. It's not that God is just offended, rather he demands true justice for sin, and that's where it falls short. So I would never freak out if I heard it, because it's still very, very common Mm -hmm. um, in in various... uh, pastors and preachers, but it, it's still not uh, the key, or, or, or I think the best, but it's it's what reigned up to the Reformation. Yeah, yeah. And then we got a, a, a we agreed it's Socinian, right? It is Socinian. Yeah, I, I, okay. That's, this one's kind of a hard one to explain, at least in my own mind. I constantly get frustrated. It's called the example theory. It's a, it's part of Socinianism, uh, an old heresy, but um, it's Christ's death becomes an example that should inspire mankind to follow him and live and even die in the same way. Um, it's, it's really popular in kind of what I call the sappy yeah. Christian literature and talk. Um, it, I, I think uh, we have it in our notes, um, but it, the problem here is it doesn't even look at uh, Christ's death really as a sacrifice or the fullness of what sin has wrought in creation. It's not dealing with sin as much. It, it, it doesn't even really see Christ's death as part of God's sovereign plan. Rather, what it sees is that it was due to Christ's philosophy, in other words, his teaching, that he was a good man, he, he was maybe even God, but it's his philosophy and teaching and his willingness to die for it that shows us his sincerity. And so very common in liberal theologies, mm-hmm. this is where your social justice comes up, mm-hmm. that we should be doing things like Christ, and, and he, isn't he a wonderful example for us? So you'll see it in every form of liberalism. Well, yeah, and it, it, it focuses on a very positive aspect of the atonement. So um, God wanting to demonstrate his love, um, Christ died for us. Yeah. And so he's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's just like, so who would die for something that they didn't believe was true? Yeah, that's the idea, and so he came and he did all these these you know this activism. He fed people, he healed people, 
and to show his sincerity of, of his mission and what he represents, I'm going to die for that. I would even argue that it's part of the liberation theology kind of a thing where they really hyper-focus upon him leading the captives free and, and all that, not really worrying about exactly what is meant by that. Um, again, here you're, you're dealing with a man-centered thing that's not uh, dealing with justice. Yeah. Uh, that we have offended and broke the law of God, and he's a holy and just God, and mm -hmm. he demands justice. Yeah. Um, now, there's one that's similar to this. Yep. You want to take that sure. one? Sure. So this one is uh, this called, This is by a guy named Abelard, um, and his this is called the moral influence theory. Mm -hmm. uh, he was from 1079 to 1142. Um, and so this one, yeah, it's similar. It's, it's Christ's death was not to remove sin. So it's not dealing with the issue of sin. Rather, it was to show the fullness of God's love to man. Um, and so he, he put on display his love. I don't have a better word to say other than just with the hopes that man will then come to him. Yeah. Um, you know, so this is uh, semi-Pelagianism almost. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but this results then you being liberated from your sin. So when you see what he did in all of his love, it draws you to him. And now, you know, you can have your liberation from sin. Yeah, the problem though is it doesn't again re deal with the reality of sin and how utterly life dominating it is in every way. Uh, it also again doesn't deal with God's justice. It doesn't recognize God's holy um, that He must punish sin. But here's one that uh, here's a saying that actually reflects this that I grew up with. Um, in fact, my mom had this in needlepoint on the wall of our mm. house. Um, it, it, it was this, how much do you love me? Uh, I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And Jesus said, this much. And then he stretched out his arms and died. And it's a famous little poem. Nobody knows who wrote it. I wish they had never written it. Um, but it's that idea. But this is, this is also used all the time in churches to make altar calls. Mm -hmm. They're trying to work your, your heart. They're mm -hmm. trying to say, look, can't you see how much he loved you? He died for you. I mean, and then they get into that really big and they're trying to make it that somehow if you could only see how much he loves you, then you would want him. Mm -hmm. But it's still, it's a very deficient view. Yeah. But it preaches good. Sure. And in this day and age where it's all about. Therapeutic. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. So, and then I'm going to let you pronounce this guy's name. Hugo Grotius. That's All what right. I'm going with. All right. Uh, yeah, that's what we're going with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A Dutch guy. Yeah. So 1539 to 1609, and he came up with what's known as the governmental theory of atonement. Um, I, I can just read something quick that sums it up. It says, the death of Christ was a propitiation for the sins of men because it was a revelation of the righteousness of God on the grounds of which he can remit the penalties of sin because it was an act of submission to the justice of those penalties on behalf of mankind. Okay. So... Now tell me, what did you just read? <laughs> yeah, so so the, actually this one, he was writing in reaction to Socinians. Um, and so what he's saying is Christ didn't die on, on behalf of mankind. Rather, the death on the cross was to demonstrate how much God hates sin. So mm. now it's not how much God loves you, it's actually how much he hates sin. Um, and so his hatred, therefore, is displayed in the death of Christ, and then also his his love for righteousness is displayed in the death of Christ. And yeah. so he's like a, a good king or a good governor um, showing what sin deserves, which yeah. is death. Yeah, we're, we're gonna punish this 
Yeah. As a king, I'm, I need to set an example. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. Again, though, it, it this one has no scriptural evidence at all. It's interesting, though, that here's how what how we get in trouble is you have different theologies popping up, yeah. and then people try to fix that, but they don't necessarily just go back to the text. And, you know, and that's, you end up with views like this. Um, mm-hmm. It's really just a f- very sophisticated philosophical argument. But it also only lists, uh, works on the uh, or focuses on the negative aspects of Christ's death. Um, in this view, then Christ's work forgave sins, but it fails to see that there was a much there was a lot more happening uh, yeah. that he did with his death. So right. let's let's go from there to the what we would call the best view. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, This is that Christ as the sinless God man took upon himself the full penalty that should have been borne by man. Um, You know, in this one, our sin was was literally placed upon him and he suffered and died in our place. Yeah, not an example. No. Mm -hmm. Not to free us from the devil. Not to show you, not to, yeah, Yeah. pay a ransom. We're actually dealing with sin here. Yeah, this is justice. So so a penalty for sin is being paid. That's where the penal comes Mm -hmm. in. And then... Christ met this in our place. Substitutionary. Yep, there you go. Um, and and we, we hold to this one, not simply, but simply because it has the most exegetical evidence. Well, I, I, I think that's worth emphasizing. We're not, we're talking about theology here and we're talking about views, theological views, but this is not just being invented. This right. this is, what what's the text actually saying? So, um I think that's important for people here, and I, I believe we actually have another podcast coming that will get into the nature of, of yeah, we'll what just Christ talk about did this and yeah. look at some of these texts and talk about them. But right now, people are going to have to believe that we actually looked at the Bible. <laughs> yeah, but it's also important to note though, that this isn't the only aspect of, of, of the atonement. Um, it wasn't just merely to pay the penalty for sin in our place, though that seems to be based yeah. on the text, the primary one. Yeah. The- if I were to put a percentage, I'd say 90% this, and, and there is that aspect of the satisfaction that Anselm had. I yeah. mean, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not the preeminent one. And so, again, if you're going to fall into theological battles, you say, well, I'm, I hold a sat- satisfaction. The other guy said, well, I'm penal substitutionary, and you won't talk to each other. Actually, we can talk. We can agree on aspects, but let's go back to the text and just let it go. Yeah. But Grudem does a nice job. Uh, you want to read it or you want sure. me to? I can read it. Um, he said, I prefer Brokoff, but. <laughs> okay. Uh, Grudem says, uh, the view of Christ's death presented here has frequently been called the theory of penal sub- substitution. Christ's death was penal and that he bore a penalty when he died. His death was also a substitution and that he was a substitute for us when he died. This has been the orthodox understanding of the atonement held by evangelical theologians in contrast to other views that attempt to explain the atonement apart from the idea of the wrath of God or payment of the penalty for sin. This view of the atonement is sometimes called the theory of vicarious atonement. A vicar is someone who stands in the place of another who represents another. Christ's death was therefore vicarious because he stood in our place and represented us. As a representative, he took the penalty that we deserve. Okay. That's actually, I know you like Burkhoff, but that's a nice that's a clean. Summary, yeah. yeah, that's a good summary. Yeah. Um, here's the challenges. When we're talking about atonement, 
like any point of theology, you can really end up um, creating problems um, and debates that arise, but they never actually understand, first of all, that almost nothing today is coming out of nowhere. It's not being invented today. It, it, theologians from the past have already worked through these things. But if we don't know what's going on, then we can't even begin to assess what we hear. And so it's important that everyone understand that take your most popular preachers, whoever they might be that you like, if, if they are reasonably trained, they buy into one of these views. Mm-hmm. And, and you probably never even knew it. And so you're, you're carried along with the story or you're carried along with the preaching and, and the person's maybe a gifted preacher, but um, you're actually being led down a path on certain views that you don't even know because um, you're not aware of their understanding of, of various uh, points of theology, such as the theory of atonement. Yeah. So um, it, it ends up to provo- promoting like a division or the, I guess a popular word today is tribalism. Um, but in good theology, there's always more of a both and rather than an either or. And that's hard for us to get through because we like to land on something and it's... We like boxes. Yeah. Yeah. But theology is... Good theology doesn't lend itself that way. But we also lack the patience to listen long enough to know what somebody's saying. So we need to learn to accept aspects of some of these views. Some of these are just wrong, but um, some of these views have merit. But when you do a careful examination of the passages, when you actually open up the Bible and start to tear apart the passages that are dealing with the atonement or the death of Christ, the final view, the penal substitutionary, rapidly rises to its preeminence. And that's where uh, we really get our problem because we're not doing the hard work of exegesis, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's easier just to read a book rather than work through the text. Yeah. Um. So there, uh, when it comes to atonement, there's a fun study you can do. Um, and, then, and, and it's how the New Testament writers use various prepositions uh, to bring out the intent of, of Christ's death. Um, a preposition is, they're, they're small words, but they're, they're words that bring all the meaning. I heard one, one professor of mine said, the world turns on prepositions. I actually read a doctoral dissertation from Trinity on uh, the theology of prepositions. An entire doctoral dissertation. It was pretty good. Murray J. Harris, probably. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I just he, remember. Well, he, he's got a phenomenal thing on that. Um, so a preposition is like we, a... We really <laughs> need... <laughs> <we're geeking> we, <laughs> <laughs> we like need a life. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, should, I feel like I should be embarrassed, but I'm not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So quickly, prepositions are, it's just a grammatical category and it talks about space, location, things like that. So on, over, below, on behalf of. Instead the, of. Yeah, things like that. Throw in one. So when, when, it talk, when, when it comes to atonement though, uh, one of the key prepositions in the Greek is this preposition anti. And it's used to speak of, of instead of or in the place of. And, and it's really important to understand for what we're arguing for, which is penal substitution atonement. An example is in Matthew 20, 28. He says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for 
the many, and that word translated as for is anti. So it should be, and to give his life as a ransom in the place of right. the many. And that's what we're looking for when we're listening to a person's testimony. We say, and he, well, he yeah. died for my sin. And it's like, okay, but what's that preposition for yeah. mean? Right. And they, people don't know. It's like, he took your place. And so I know in our preaching, we emphasize that over and over again in different ways of that he stood and did what we could not do. He he stood in our place. He took our sin. Uh, and it's all built off of that preposition. But if people were to go and look at all, a lot of their Bible passages, assuming they got a decent translation, um, they're going to find that he died for our sins or he died for his sheep in John 10. Mm-hmm. Um, those, those are all using this yeah. in preposition. Their, in the place yeah. of them. And if yeah. they can learn then to... I mean, I'll even do it when I'm reading out loud for the church. I'll say for, or in other words, in the place of the sheep, they, that the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. What's that mean? It, it means he took their place and he laid his life down so they didn't. It becomes a glorious yeah. thing because you you really begin to appreciate what he did. And um, and again, it's that substitutionary. Yeah. What, what's another important word? How do you pronounce it? Compare. Okay. How do you pronounce it? Well, the same way, oh, okay. but but I, I got corrected on another one, and I'm like now hyper Huper. worried. Huper. Actually, that's part of my problem is that's I funny, actually where... memor. Yes. Right, go ahead. No, that's how I memorized it, and Hooper Duper. Hooper Duper. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. It just went. Mm, that's fine. It was. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not Hooper, and it was used. Uh, this is why do I get this? This listen, well, this is fun. When you get the genitive, yeah, everyone's like, oh my oh, goodness, what the heck is a genitive? We want to go there. Um, <laughs> when it's used with the genitive, seconds. it carries the ideas. <laughs> this is because you had D.A. Carson <laughs> in advanced Greek grammar, and you know that he may actually listen to us one day, and you don't want. Yeah, except that he would yell at you because you're using Greek using words. Using Greek, I don't to, care. I, I'm assuming you? the people that are listening to this know Greek. That's my justification. Yeah, I, and <laughs> and my justification is I don't We've really care. We've explained it. We're <laughs> okay. explaining it. Anyhow, when it's used with the genitive, um, it carries the similar ideas of auntie, uh, but also gives the idea of on behalf of. So here's here's another one in Romans five, and these are passages people quote all the time. For while we were yet sinner, or while we were yet helpless, at the right time Christ died on behalf of mm. the ungodly. That's what the for there means. Uh, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And in America, we focus on that love. Yeah which then we try to make one of those other views of the atonement be the yeah. big point, but it's not the point. Uh, this is how he demonstrates his love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on behalf of us. Yeah, so That's that's the point. And then in Galatians 3.13, he does again, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse on behalf of us. Mm-hmm. So he, he, again, it's that substitutionary idea. Yeah. So what's important to think about this um, when it comes to the idea of, you know, the non-elect. Um, so the, this idea of Christ died on behalf of us or instead of us or in our place, did he actually accomplish that? And that's yeah. that's the rub. Is yeah. it, And it's very hard to get a person to slow down long enough 
emotionally when you're talking about the nature of the atonement and the limited aspect of it, that yeah. he died for something. He did something. It wasn't that he potentially did it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this. these are not saying that he might have, he wants to, he's willing to. Yeah. It says he actually did, it. did yeah. this. He was our place. Um, so, yeah. So, so go ahead and explain that so more. So p- penal substitution, in contrast to some of those previous views, is dealing with justice. Um on behalf of people, we have to ask the question then, if that's what we're talking about with penal substitution is justice, is God, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, but is God guilty then of requiring a double payment for sin when people end up in hell? Because if if we're saying the atonement meets out justice, right. then, then justice ju- has been dealt with. Yeah, <laughs> so th- there's a common, um, it's a logical statement, but it's it's a, it sums up what you just said is, you know, you're talking to a person and they say, well, you know, we, we say Christ died in the place of us for the elect and he bore our sin. And they're like, yeah, but no, he did that for everybody. I, okay, then does everybody go to heaven? No. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't they go to heaven? Well, they don't believe in him. Well, is unbelief a sin? Right. Yes. Did not Christ bear away or, yeah. Yeah. Bear away. All of the. Bear board. Bore, yeah, that's know. why I'm like, God, not, now, anyhow, take away <laughs> <laughs> all of the sin. Well, yeah, okay, then he took away even our unbelief mm-hmm. that we haven't yet expressed. And, and, and so that's the issue. That's why good theology that belie- doesn't believe in limited atonement also doesn't hold to a penal substitutionary view. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. And th- so that podcast we did on traditional statement, they're trying to argue for a penal substitutionary atonement. Right. But but then they're trying to say that he died for everybody. You're like, you can't do it. Yeah. Theologically, exegetically, you can't make those texts do that. So yeah. this is why this stuff matters. Yeah. So bring it on home. Yeah, let's give some uh, concluding thoughts on this. Um, in all of this, it again highlights a common error that that humans tend to commit in their minds. You know, we've, we've said this before, but you know, we like neat, neatness. Yeah. Um, we like boxes. Um, and so when we find that something works well overall, we tend to ignore details or aspects of other schemes that might fit into what we're holding to. And so we can't, you know, so we do hold the penal substitutionary atonement, but we can't ignore um, other views or aspects of other views. Um, and so in light of us liking our boxes and our tight schemes, there's a problem that arises then when you have two or more groups that come up with a specific idea or an absolute um, that appears to be at odds with another one. Um, you know, so we would say the substitutionary position fits best with what we see in scripture uh, and the actual biblical evidence, but we don't, we're not going to build up walls around it and make it too rigid um, to not allow, you know, aspects from other views in. Um, there's a lot more going on simply than the penalty of sin. In fact, we actually talk about that in our membership class. Yeah. Because it is a commonly misunderstood. I don't know if the people always appreciate what we're trying to do, but <laughs> we, sure. we, we try. Yeah. Uh, there's a second takeaway, and that would be to study the atonement in more detail. Um, you know, if if in some way what we've said makes you think more and say, well, I'd like to understand that, uh, there's a book by John Murray, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. It's it's a little book, but it is rich, mm-hmm, and yeah. he does an incredible job in dealing with what is going on 
in the death of Christ. And so somebody wants to go in deeper. Now it's yeah, it's, it's small, kinda, but it's it's dense. It's the definitive <clears throat> yeah. one on this. Yeah. You don't want to read this one in bed or <laughs> right. under a cozy comforter. It's 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 heavy, but it's it's really, really good. Um but along with that, it if you will begin to appreciate what really took place on the cross, as the Bible tells us, it deepens your worship, right? Mm-hmm. Um it makes your singing a lot more rich as you come across certain phrases and you realize that it's not just this emotional kind of like, he died for me. It's like, wow, he he stood in my place and he took what was mine. But it will also give you a less of a tolerance for some of the sappy, nasty songs out there that pass themselves off as Christian songs. Um, it will make your reading better of the scripture. Uh, it will make your evangelism more urgent. You'll... you'll it, it, <laughs> You know, it it also will give you a better. It, instead of trying to appeal to their emotions of he loves you so much, he died for you. Yeah. Can't, you know, don't you don't you want to let him into your heart? You actually can deal with the real problem, and that is that you are a rebel, opposed to God, and hostility to God. You are under His wrath, and you need someone to take your place because you have nothing to offer. And then you bring the gospel, and this is what Christ did. Um, and and it makes your prayers more biblical because. You, you, if you really understand that doctrine, you can't be unthankful. You, you have to be thankful um, that that Christ literally stood in your place. So, would you agree with me? It, it really is a doctrine yeah. that you need to worthy of your time. Yeah, worthy of your meditation. Very much. So that's our attempt at a brief whirlwind tour from the beginnings of the early church to now on the theories of atonement.